Well, in 1970, which was a little before my time, um, a book came out that kind of unexpectedly went to the top of the bestseller list and to current estimates to this day has sold over 30, close to 35 million copies of the book. And it was especially popular amongst many Christians. It was called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey a novel kind of sketching out the, the future of, of the end times and what things may possibly look like and it kind of caught hold of people's imagination. And not too old for me, I, I grew up reading these when I was younger, was the Left Behind series, the books which came out, which I didn't realize, I looked it up this week, they, there was 16 total books. I thought I read them all because I read like four or five, but apparently I never got to the end of the story, um, and which, which to this day have sold over 80 million copies. And along with this has been a rise in our world the last 10, 20, 30 years of thinking about the future and the return of Jesus. If you, if you just take a, a look almost any time at, at movies that are playing in a theater, not necessarily just Christian movies, but any movies, there's likely to be something of the idea of the world ending. Zombie apocalypse movies are everywhere in the TV shows the last 10 years. We're fascinated with this idea of the end of the world and what is going to take place. But I think that there's been some troubles in my mind as, I, as I've seen and interacted with Christians over this idea of the future of, of what is termed for a theological word. It's called eschatology, which is a fancy word for basically saying future things or the end times that the Bible talks about. And I think a few things stand out to me as, as I talk with such of the popularity of, of certain novels and books. By the way, I'm not saying that it was a bad thing to have read those. I read them as well, many of them. But for so many Christians, when they're forming their theology of the end times, it's based off of stories, not the scripture. When they think of the millennium or the tribulation or the second coming of Jesus, they think back to a movie or to a novel they read rather than to what God's word Says, And I don't think that should be so. So tonight we're going to look at a passage that talks about Jesus' coming. But not only that, with the rise in eschatology and our, our thinking of it amongst Christians, we started to think more deeply about the end times, which I think is a very good thing. But with our depth of thought often came greater debate amongst Christians. And so you'd have people over here who'd be premillennial, arguing against the amillennial, arguing against the postmillennials, and then you'd have the people who are the panmillennials. It's like, I hope everything pans out. That's my view, right? I don't, really, I don't really know. It just pans out in the end. They're kind of arguing amongst each other. And then you get the tribulation. You have the pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, and all the deferring views thereof. And oftentimes, when Christians got together and talked about eschatology or the end of the world, it just became debating about passages and figures. And, and we would take out charts, and we would try and guess when's the right time, who's right, who's wrong. And I think oftentimes, we've missed a huge fact of this, that the purpose of eschatology is not for greater debate, but for greater devotion in our lives. The purpose of the Bible when it tells us about God's plan for the world and for our future isn't so we can get together in a room or in a conference and have great debate amongst others. It's good to think deeply and seriously, and there's places for debate. But so often when we've thought of the future and eschatology as Christians, so often we've simply debated, and it hasn't changed our lives at all. We're not living any differently because of what we believe God is going to do in the future. 
As I was studying this this week, I I came across um, some writing of a prominent New Testament scholar who writes that in his estimation, in his study of the New Testament, every time in the New Testament that the writer talks about the future, about the end times, every single time, it's with practical implications for that person today. The writers of the New Testament weren't just helping us speculate and debate about the future. They wanted us to follow Jesus well now. And as we look at 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight, as we look at this, this second coming of Jesus, we're going to look here three responses to the coming king that should characterize every believer. Three responses to the coming king that should be true in each and every one of our lives. If you have your Bibles, would you open them, please, to the book of 2 Peter? Um, 2 Peter, this is our, our fourth out of five weeks going through the, the book of 2 Peter. If you received the handout when you walked in today, the full text is also included in that handout. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The first response to the coming king that we should have, the first response is that we should recognize his imminence. That we should recognize his imminence. Imminence is a word that means his closeness, God's interaction in our world and in our lives. When we think of God coming in the future, it should cause us to recognize God's activity constantly throughout history and in our world. He writes to them in verses 1 and 2 that he wants to remind them. He's reminding them of something. Now, when Peter is saying, I'm reminding you of something, it's not as if he's concerned that they've simply forgotten. Like they were like, oh, man, we had remembered that, but we just kind of, it slipped our mind. But instead, it's, it's this, this idea that a reminder, meaning you haven't lived this out fully. You, you know this in your head, but you haven't lived this out. And it's similar to, to the intention which he reminded them in chapter 1 that he wrote. In first Peter, so excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one, verses twelve to fifteen, he says a similar thing when he says this. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so Peter looks at his audience and realizes that in a sense, they haven't lived out fully this implication of the return of Jesus. 
and he's looking, and there's, there's things missing in their lives, both from pressures they're facing and from their own confusion as well. So first, he addresses the pressure that they're facing in, in standing up for the fact that Jesus will come again. And in verse 3, we're told that, first of all, will come, and likely in their day had come, scoffers doing their scoffing. That's a great word. I need to use that more. Doing their scoffing. Now, this is different from if you were here last week when we talked about chapter 2, these false prophets. The false teachers were trying to dissuade people about the end times. The scoffers didn't have any tactics. They basically were just going around making fun of people. They were mockers. They basically were saying this, oh, you all said Jesus is coming back? You said G Jesus, Jesus is coming back, really? You think he forgot? You think he slept in? You think he got his alarm clock misbehaved and now he's not here? You think he left you? All right, Jesus isn't coming back. They were just making fun of them. And part of their, their reasoning at the end of verse 4 of what they would, would say about this promise that Jesus would come back for his people is they would argue that, hey, since the fathers fell asleep, nothing's happened. It's all the same. By fathers, they're likely ref referring back to the Old Testament saints, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. They're saying, hey, all, look at all of history. Nothing's really happened. God hasn't done anything big. God hasn't showed up. Why are you holding out that God's going to do something big in the future? And they would just egg them on and make fun of them because of their belief that Jesus would return. It's the reality that Peter reminds the people of that they can hold on to when they're facing the, these insinuations and innuendos from people on the outside is God's imminence and that he has always been active and involved in our world. And he reminds them of two specific things of God's involvement. First, in verse 5, he reminds them of creation. He points them back to creation of the world. If you're wondering if God is active in our world, he says, just look back at creation. Look back at how the fact that the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's a powerful statement, that last phrase, that everything we see, everything we know came into existence by the word of God. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says this way. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. When you look back in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1, you see how does God create? Each section starts with this, and God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said. The word of God created the entire world as we know it. Just his words. He didn't have to get down on his hands and knees. He didn't have to scrub anything together. God spoke and everything that we see, smell, taste, and have an experience with came into existence because God said it was so. And he says here that it was out of water. Now, it's, it's a little confusing. They're like, do, do, are they saying that water existed and God used water? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's the substance, but God actively used water in creation. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6, 6 to 10, excuse me, in chapter 1, and look at days 2 and 3 of creation. It's about God separating the water and creating the sky, then separating the water from the land and creating the sea and the land. Not only is that, but he's setting up water for the parallel, the next thing that he talks about with God's active involvement in our world. 
God not only has been actively involved as we see in creation, but as we see in verse 6, when talking about this water that was sent and destroyed the world, he's again referencing the flood of Noah's time. In the book of Genesis, where highlight, it, it highlights for us how the world was filled with evil and God looked and was, and was saddened by, by creation. And so he, he saved Noah and his family and they built an ark and they kept it. And the rest of the world was judged by water and they were destroyed. But God provided a way of salvation. He used a similar example in chapter 2. And so Peter's reasoning is this. You say, these scoffers will make fun of you, that God doesn't do anything. Well, A, everything you see is because God did something. B, God before, by the word of his mouth, has destroyed the whole world. And because we know God, everything that exists, exists because God made it. That God has already destroyed the world once through a flood that we can be assured of when God says in the future that he will come and judge the earth, that he actually will do so. Verse 7, at the same word, the same word that involved creation, the same word that sent the flood, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exists are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God is a transcendent God. He's greater than us. He's beyond our understanding, but he is an imminent God who is involved in creation. His presence here with us, this reminder that we serve a God who isn't a far off, a distant God, but a God who's close and who knows and cares about us should be a great encouragement and motivation to us in how we live our lives. See, if you realize and if you're constantly thinking the fact that God is close to you, that God knows you, that God cares about you, he sees you, it changes how you live your life. A couple months ago, uh, my wife and I went out of town for vacation, and we were gone for, for a little over two weeks. And so we, we found someone um, who was kind of in a, a different living situation, and we offered them, hey, come stay at our house for a couple weeks. We had a couple pets that needed feeding, but we just kind of offered it to them, and they said, okay. And we just said, hey, don't bring, like, a ton of people over, right? Don't cause any crazy parties or anything like that. Like, you can bring one or two friends over and just text us and let us know when, when you are. And the person said, okay, no problem. What that person didn't realize, because they had been to our house several times before, is not just because of this, but our doorbell was broken. So we recently installed one of those doorbells, the really fancy ones, that when you hit the button or when you walk up to it, it's got a camera on it. No one doesn't have a camera on it, but I get a notification, and my wife gets a notification every time someone walks up to our front door. We get a little buzz, we get a little live video. It's pretty, it's pretty cool, right? It's pretty what happens. And so we're on vacation. We were actually overseas, and so we had jet lag, so we were up kind of early. And it was about 10 or 11 at night here. And here this person comes, because we get the notification on our phone, walking up with about four or five other people, right? Like one or two, uh, his math wasn't very good there, right? And suddenly you can see as they walk up the steps, they all like at once look over at the doorbell, and then they go like this to the side of the stairs, right? They don't want to be seen. What they don't know is like these cameras, now I can like look in the neighbor's yard across the street, right? Like I can see all of my front porch as they're like awkwardly and they're all like pointing and then they start talking. They don't realize this thing has sound too, right? I can hear what they're saying. They're like, oh, oh what, what is that, right? And so we, we kind of text them. We're like, hey, have a fun party the other night? And they're like, oh, my, my bad. I'm sorry. I'll keep it quiet the next couple of weeks, all right? So, but, but once, once this person realized that he was, in a sense, being seen, it changed how we lived, right? He wasn't going to have 20 people over to the house because he knew that it would be seen and there would be consequences to it. 
God sees us. He sees our world. He sees your life. And that should motivate us in how we live. Motivate us to the fact that he sees all the good and the evil in the world. And we wonder, will God ever fix this? The answer is yes. He will. He sees the good and he sees the bad. See, one of the great dangers of this idea in our world of naturalism, of everything just kind of came to be as is, is not just what it says for our beginnings and that we weren't made in the image of God and we don't have a purpose, but what it also has huge implications for is our end. Because if we came here by accident, then God has no control over our future. And I love what one commentator wrote writing about these scoffers. He said this, If the scoffers of Peter's day were alive today, they would be talking about the invariable law of nature. They'd be like, oh, nothing's ever changed like that. The world has never been destroyed. It's never going to happen. We've seen, we've observed with science. But, but we know that we serve an imminent God who's close to us, who's active and involved in our world. And it motivates us to trust him and it motivates us to follow him when we think of the future. Peter continues, and he was talking about the scoffers. Now he, he addresses the questions and concerns that the, the Christians had about the return of Jesus in verse 8 to 10. He says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The second response to the coming king, the second response is that it should motivate us to revere his kindness, to revere God's kindness towards us. And he addresses for them in these, these three verses kind of two different ideas that they had about the end's coming. First, the first thing he reminds them of in, in verse 8 is this, that as human beings, we can't interpret God's timetable on the future. We can't interpret when God is coming back. And he reminds them of this fact that God is a God who's outside of time. A thousand years are as a day. He's picking up on what the psalmist also got. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, the psalmist says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. See, God is a God who is outside of time. He's not bound by time. And of all the things that I can't fully comprehend about God, I think this is one of the hardest things for me to really understand. Because I've never existed out of time. Right? We are all prisoners to time. And if we waste our day today, we don't get it back. Right? We don't get to go back. and We don't know what tomorrow holds. And, and to, to think of this idea that we serve a God who is not bound by time, but who is eternal, who exists above time and has created us in time. It causes us not to grow frustrated, but to wait patiently for his return. See, oftentimes, and it seems like for these people that there was an impatience and a frustration because God wasn't showing up. Have you ever gone and, and said you were going to meet a friend and so you drive up and you pull outside their house and you're like, hey, I'm outside your house. And they're like, okay, I'll be there in a sec. Like five minutes later, you're like, you said a sec. Yeah, just one more minute. You're like, 
minute, minute? Like, how am I supposed to translate one minute? If a second was five, is a minute like 20 minute, right? And then like, eventually, they're going to come out. And you'd be like, oh, hey, how's it going? Thanks, right? But, but chances are, if you're like me in that moment, your heart's kind of like, hurry up. We're like, stop wasting my, let's go, come on. And it's easy for us to get impatient as people. Peter wants us to remember this fact that we shouldn't look at our world, we shouldn't look at everything that's happening and be like, God, come on, hurry up, hurry up, God, what are you doing? But it calls us to be patient in waiting for his return because God is outside of our time. Not only that, but why we can be patient for God's return is because of why he hasn't returned yet. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slow, but is patient toward you. Why hasn't he returned? Because he's wishing that all should reach repentance. See, God hasn't returned yet because he's waiting for all of his children to follow after him. And until that happens, he's not going to return. And so the fact that God hasn't yet returned is not a fact that God is far off and doesn't care about us, but actually shows God's great kindness and love towards his people. It shows that he is actually a patient God waiting for all of his children to come home to him. And Peter talks in verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. The day of the Lord, he's picking up on a common expression throughout the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord was not just one single day, but referred to the end times of history when God will deliver his people from evil and will judge all evil in the world. Especially in the minor prophets, the phrase day of the Lord comes up over and over and over again. And we have this idea that Peter affirms that it comes like a thief in the night. It's an imminent return. He picks up on the same terminology that Jesus used and that Paul also used. But oftentimes it's easy for us to confuse God's motives. To think of why hasn't God returned? What is he doing? We confuse his absence in this world like God's apathetic towards what's going on in it. Well, as we sung tonight, about God's kindness and his love. That's what actually leads us to repentance, it says in the book of Romans chapter 2. And it's not that God's kindness rules out judgment. We see at the end of verse 10 that God will judge sin. He will judge all evil. But it's a motivation for us to be a part of God's mission, and he's delaying his return for a good reason. It's because his heart longs for people to trust and to follow after him. I think for us as Christians, that should be a motivation for us in our lives to be bold in our witness towards other people. If God is waiting to come back till all his children have believed, then how much more so should we, who are his children already, be bold in sharing our faith, knowing that we can actually increase that glorious day as we wait for God to return by reaching out so that more people could experience the kindness of God and come to him in repentance. But this is also a lesson. This is also a lesson, I think, these, this expression and what they were confusing here in this that we often do. My friends, don't assume that you know exactly what God's doing. These people thought, like, well, well, if God hasn't come, he's forgotten us, and we're not paying, and, and they, they were kind of freaking out, like, what is going on? And sometimes we assume we know what God is doing, and oftentimes we assume the worst. 
But oftentimes these misunderstandings lead to us misvaluing and misjudging God. A few, uh, a few years ago, my wife's birthday happened to land on a Sunday, on a Sunday. And so we came to church together and we, I, we had told her before, like, she was like, what do you want to do? I'm like, we'll, we'll go to church. We'll go to, we'll go to a high school group where I teach. And then after that, we'll go home for, for a little bit. We'll change and we'll go out and get a nice, uh, we'll go get a meal. She goes, okay, that sounds good. So we come to church. We have a great time at church. We go to youth group. And then after youth group, um, I start like talking to random people. And like, I'm a pastor here. So lots of people naturally talk to me and I like to connect with people. But Kristen, you can tell she's kind of like, it's my birthday. I would like to go home. I would, I would like, I want to, I want to go eat. Like, what are we doing? And then we like get to my office and I start like opening my computer, writing emails. And she's very patient, but you can kind of, she's like, it's my birthday. Why are we sitting here watching you write your emails on my birthday? Let's go home. Like, why are we, why are we sitting here? To which we finally go home and she doesn't make any big thing about it, right? She's very kind towards me. And we go home and as we get home, when we walk upstairs and we go into the house, she opens the door just to realize that the reason I was delaying is because I was waiting till 20 of our friends could go over into our house and surprise her for her birthday. Right? Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was very, I know, so sweet, right? It's the only nice thing. I, I get one thing right, right? So, but here's the thing. It would have been really easy to misjudge the motives, right? I've been like, what are you doing? You don't care about me. What do you do? We so often rush to conclusions when we just get little snippets that we miss the bigger picture. And so often when we rush to conclusions because we feel like, man, if God really loved us, he would just take care of everything already. He would get us out of here. He would fix everything already. Well, that, that causes us to misjudge God's character and who God is. So don't assume that we know what or why God is doing something in our world. It's often beyond our imagination. Verse 11 to 13 say this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Of the three responses to the coming king, the third response that we see in this passage, the third response is it should rouse our holiness. It should grow about and raise in our lives, bring a passion and a fire in our lives for our own holiness. See, as believers, we not only look to the future as a time where evil and sin will ultimately be judged, but look at the hope found for us in verse 13. According to God's promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation gives us a picture of this in Revelation chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I'm making all things new. That's our hope. That's what, if you're a believer tonight, that's what God has promised each and every one of us. That the place is coming, the new heavens and the new earth, the place where righteousness dwells. No sin, no evil, no wrong. And all the implications of that, the hurt, the pain, the tears, all of that as well is removed. That's the future that we can look forward to. And as we look forward to it, he makes this peculiar expression in verse 12. He says this, for us to wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. To wait for and to hasten or, or to hurry to try and help him bring about. Well, how do we as believers hasten the day of God? How do we hasten his return? First, which was implied here as well as in the previous section, is in our witness towards other people. If God is waiting for all of his children to come to faith in him, then as we share our faith, we actually hasten this coming return of Jesus Christ where he makes all things new. But not only that, and the focus of this passage is on the end of verse 11. This phrase, I love this phrase, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought Christians to be? Because we know the end. We know that Jesus will come back. All the wrong that's been done to us will be forgiven. And we will have this great hope of a righteous future living with God forever. How much more should we live now holy lives because of the future that we have to come? And it's not just a long way off, but it's something close. As it said in verse 10, it's a thief in the night. See, when, when we think of Christ coming not as something that's going to happen in a long time, but as something that could happen any time, as imminent as it could be upon us, it changes how we live and it changes how we live our lives. See, when we view it as a far off, we tend to get lazy in our living. But when we view Christ's return as being close, we live expectant lives looking for his coming. See, the Christian life should be filled with longing, not lethargy. And so often we're just lazy about our lives when it should be filled with longing, looking for the return of Jesus Christ, knowing that his return is imminent. The events could happen soon, that at any time he could return and all this would take place. So I was thinking this week of, of how someone returning soon affects our lives. I, I thought of my own life. Um, I thought of my own life. My day off of work is Friday. And so I spend most, not every, but most Fridays I spend at home. And my wife works Monday to Friday, which means Friday's kind of like my alone day, right? She, she leaves the house at around 8.30 in the morning, and then I'm home till she gets home from work. Now, I've learned a few things about having the day off from work by myself at home. One of them is this. The house should not look dirtier when she comes home than when she left in the morning, Right? I got an amen over there, right? Yeah, yeah. If I've been home alone for 10 hours, there's no excuse for the dishes to be stacked up. There's no excuse for my clothes to be thrown all over the place, right? It doesn't have to look spotless. I don't have to clean the entire house, scrub it, but I shouldn't make a mess of things. And because I know that she's going to return soon, right? If you start doing some stuff, suddenly it's three, four in the afternoon, you can't push everything off. So it just changes how you live. You take care of things, you put things away. Well, a few times in my life, my wife has traveled for work or for, our, for vacation visiting family, and she's been gone for a couple days, a week. The dishes pile up. The laundry piles up in the corner. Why? 
She's not coming back anytime soon, right? She's several days away. I don't have to worry about this stuff right now. I got a long time. I can take care of it. And then, right, she's like, I'm an hour away. And you're like, oh, shoot, I got to get all this stuff going. I got to throw the laundry in. got to start doing the dishes. Right? You wait to the last minute. But, but there's this laziness that comes because we think, oh, it's, it's a long ways away. I don't have to worry about it right now. Friends, God's return is not necessarily a long ways away. It could be very close. And we should live lives like it. Can I challenge you tonight to stop saying later to God? When God tells us to do something, stop saying later to God. Stop saying, oh, I'll do that in the future. If you're a young person tonight in, in school, stop saying, oh, when, when, I'm, when I'm older, that's when I'll take my faith seriously. Stop saying you'll do it later in life. Stop saying that one day you'll share your faith with your coworkers or your neighbors. Stop saying later to that. Stop saying you'll be later about doing your devotions. Maybe, maybe in 2019, I'll get serious about reading my Bible. It's, it's the middle of the year. You can't start a Bible reading plan now. I'll wait till January, later. That's when I'll get serious about my relationship with the Lord. And if you're not a Christian tonight, stop saying later about making that decision. I've got a lot of fun stuff I can do now. I want to live life my way and later, later, when, things, when I'm older, when I get married, when I have kids, what I, later is when... I'll become serious and start following Jesus. But friends, later for any of us is not guaranteed. Not just because of the shortness of our lives, but because Jesus could come back at any day. See, the purpose of eschatology is not just for greater debate, but for greater devotion in our lives. I'm going to ask you a question. If Jesus was coming back on Friday, how would you live differently this week? If Jesus was coming back Friday and you knew it, his return was imminent and you knew he was coming, how would you live differently this week? Whatever God's placed on your heart, how you would live differently, go and do it this week. Go and do it because you don't even know if you have till Friday. You might not even have tonight and tomorrow. God's return is imminent. He could return at any moment. And that's a great source of hope for our lives but it's also a great motivation for each and every believer to live a life pleasing and following him. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who is coming soon. And your promised return to this earth is sure. And we know, God, we know that you will be victorious over sin and evil. God, I pray that, that this, this idea of, of realizing that your return could be soon would motivate us to holy living. God, what sort of people ought we to be in matters of holiness and godliness since we know that you are coming soon? God, would you give us boldness? Would you give us passion? Would you give us holiness in our lives? God, for any who aren't following you tonight but have been putting it off, God, today... Would you convict their hearts that today is the day that they need to follow you, to stop saying tomorrow, to stop pushing you off, but to be serious today. God, we thank you for the promise, the hope, the future that we have, that when we follow you, we know that you return in victory and that our lives spent living and worshiping you are worth it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.